Good morning. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, and I'm looking forward to opening the word with you, as hopefully you are looking forward to opening the word with me. So a tried and true formula, uh, and it's, it's for fiction, it's for Hollywood, uh, and it works in real life too. In fact, oftentimes fiction follows real life, is uh, to root for the underdog. Uh, when I was down in Georgia in SEC land for college football, I'm a Big Ten guy. I'm not SEC football. So I don't have a dog in the fight down there, but I watched a few football games with people who did. And I would usually root for the team that had the least chance of winning. Uh, if you look at fiction, uh, one of the ones that I came up with, I'm a big J.R.R. Tolkien fan. I love The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien was a Christian. He actually led C.S. Lewis to the Lord, but he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote several books, actually. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy being one of them. And throughout the entire trilogy, you're rooting for an underdog, Frodo Baggins, this little hobbit who is tasked with carrying the one ring, uh, which is the most powerful magical object in this created universe, to Mount Doom to destroy it. And uh, you're rooting for him the entire time. Uh, if you look at um, Forrest Gump, for those of you who are familiar with the Forrest Gump story, he's kind of an underdog, and you root for him the entire time you're watching that movie. If you look at real life, Vince Papali, anybody familiar with Vince Papali? Anybody? Vince Papali, okay. So Vince Papali, uh, back in the 70s, actually walked on to the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Uh, they opened up tryouts to, to the city of Philadelphia, and he tried out as a nobody, for lack of a better term, and made it to the team. Uh, there's a movie out there if you want to watch it. Um, don't remember the name of it. I apologize, but I know Mark Wahlberg <laughs> is the starring character, but it's a great movie. Uh, and the whole movie, you're, you're rooting for that character. Probably a better-known sports movie that you root for that underdog character is Rudy. Everybody knows Rudy, right? So a quick side story about Rudy. I actually have um, my, my dad, for those of you who don't know, is a baseball chaplain for a minor league ball team in Clinton, Iowa. It's a single-A ball team. At one point in our existence, we were affiliated with the Reds. I don't think we are anymore. Um, but we used to actually house baseball players at our house. Um, I can remember three specifically. One was named Paco, one was named Ryan McDaniel, and one is from Georgia. His name was Marlon Allen. Marlon Allen told us a story. Uh, his brother played for Georgia Tech. So if you remember at the end of the movie when Rudy uh, playing Notre, or they're playing, excuse me, Notre Dame is playing Georgia Tech, and they bring him in at the final moments of the game when they're ahead, and he sacks the quarterback. Rudy! Rudy! Well, the quarterback was Marlon Allen's brother, and his name was Rudy. So he was obviously confused about that. The point is, is we, we, uh, we like to root for the underdog. And the Bible is actually full of underdog stories, and the book of Judges is full of underdog stories. And we'll be looking at one of those this morning. But before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to meet. We thank you for all of the gifts that you have blessed us with, Lord. We thank you, first and foremost, for the gift of your Son, something we don't deserve, and you gave to us freely, Lord. And we thank you so much for, for that, for that sacrifice. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
can turn to Judges chapter 4. That's what we'll be reading out of, Judges chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read two passages of Scripture previous to that. The first is in Exodus chapter 15. And for context, Exodus chapter 14 is when the Israelites cross the Red Sea and Pharaoh attempts to follow with his chariots and uh, the might of Pharaoh was broken at that point. So the Israelite people saw Pharaoh's chariots swallowed up by the Red Sea. In chapter 15, verse 20, the song of Miriam, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And another passage of scripture in Joshua, chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11, and it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plains south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of the Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook Misraphath, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. And now to the passage of scripture we'll be reading this morning in Judges chapter 4. So last time I spoke, I covered Deborah. The counterpart to that story is Barak. And that's who we'll be talking about this morning. But we will read chapter 4. When Ehud was dead and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And we did talk about uh, last time that was likely a title similar to Pharaoh. Uh, which was a title bestowed upon the kings of, of Egypt. So Jabin was a king of Canaan. This is not the same Jabin we read about in uh, Joshua chapter 11. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. 
Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zinam, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued king of Cadence, the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And you see the end result at the end of chapter 5. So the land had rest for 40 years. So this passage of scripture begins with the same story we see throughout the book of Judges, Israel sinning. It's a cycle that repeats itself, and it's something I talked about last time we were talking about Deborah. Um, Does anybody remember why Israel was in that cycle, that repeated cycle of falling into sin, being being, uh, um, rescued, and then falling back into sin, being rescued? Anybody happen to remember that from last time? That's right. So if you remember at the very beginning of the book of Judges, they were commanded to clear the land of the Canaanites. It wasn't because God wanted to perpetrate genocide against the people. It was because they were evil. They had... Uh, evil practices, and God did not want that to be a part of his people. Uh, so if they were, they were uh, living with his people, they would be introducing those practices uh, into the, the children of Israel, into their daily practice. And they did not follow, as you said, uh, God's command. And because of their disobedience, uh, now they had to deal with the consequences. And the consequences of their sin were that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were subjugated. Uh, several times, this isn't the only, the only story, uh, obviously, but in this particular instance, the cycle does repeat. And God raises a judge. And that judge is Deborah. And Deborah was also a prophetess. We did talk about that last time. And Deborah, at this point, 
in the story, uh, inspired by God, commanded a man to lead his people to deliverance. And that's found in 6 and 7. And we don't know a lot about Barak. The Bible is, doesn't tell us whether he was a, a leader or even a judge uh, or whether he was a nobody. It doesn't, it's, it's pretty silent on that except for to say that he is of the tribe of Naphtali and he is the son of Abinom. More than likely he was not a nobody. More than likely he was a leader of some sort uh, in, in the region. Not necessarily a military one because remember they've been subjugated for 20 years. So I haven't had a lot of experience to get military experience, for lack of a better way to put that. And we see in, in uh, verse 8, Barak's response to Deborah's command. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. If you do not go with me or you will not go with me, I will not go. To put it another way, to put it simply, his response to God's command was no, unless. Why do you think Barack said that? And I welcome feedback. Why, why does anybody here think Barack said no, unless, to God's command? He didn't have any encouragement of God or didn't have any faith in God Lack of faith. Anybody else? You want to know whether she had any skin in the game? That's something I considered, yes. <laughs> I don't know why, but it definitely reminds me of Moses. Yeah. When Moses says, um, yeah, well, no, not just send Aaron, not that part, but with um, when he says to the Lord, like, Lord, go with us. And, and the Lord says, I was like, I will, I promise I'll always live with right? So I think it's a third text. Anybody else? This is kind of a combination of some of those, but yeah, don't we still do that? We put people up on a pedestal that they have, are more spiritual, and so we want to hang around them mm-hmm. because it'll kind of come down to us too. And I don't know if that's maybe part of it with him as he sees in Deborah, you know, a faith and a trust. In- yeah, she was a judge and she was well respected. Yeah. People came to her for judgment. I'll have her with me, and then I'm guaranteed, rather than recognizing that God will use anybody, can use anybody. Right. Anybody else? Abe? I wonder, you know, you talk about who Barack was, but he was nobody or a leader. So he may not have had confidence that people would follow him unless Ephra was ahead of him. And if she was recognized as prophet, but we don't know what he was. So maybe that's part of it. So the, the typical response, if you search for Barack uh, in, in commentaries or uh, in, in articles online, would typically say it was, it was a lack of courage. I would typically say that. Um, it's interesting. I've actually been studying, um, well, ethics, military ethics recently as part of a class and being reminded, because I did take some philosophy in college, uh, of the concept of virtue ethics and virtue ethics would state that um, 
there are, there are multiple virtues, and, and within that virtue, you're seeking to find the golden mean. And what that means is, is the extreme on each end of a virtue would be a vice. So, for instance, courage is considered a virtue. The extreme on one hand would be uh, recklessness, rashness, and the extreme of the other end would be cowardice. And you want to find that golden mean, which is in the middle, somewhere in the middle. Um, which is to say, and why I bring that up, fear is not, a lack of fear, I should say, is not a part of courage. You can be courageous and be afraid. In fact, it is wise to be afraid. Um, but the difference is, is someone who is courageous has mastered their fear. You could say that someone who isn't afraid is probably reckless. Um, but was it, was it a lack of courage? Or sometimes, as we said, like sometimes you need another person, maybe who you consider stronger, backing you up. I couldn't help but think of when I was studying this, a scene from a movie uh, starring Danny Kay. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Danny Kay. For those of you who are younger in the audience and don't watch old movies, Danny Kay, you might recognize from White Christmas, where he starred with Bing Crosby. Um, so he was the other, the other guy, the under, other entertainer. But in a movie called The Court Jester, um, for those of you who are familiar with it, it's, it's very much a Robin Hood story, a Robin Hood type story. And there's a character who is Robin Hood. His name is the Black Fox. And there is a Prince John character. Well, the court jester who Danny Kay plays is an entertainer. That is nothing more uh, than he is. And he finds himself in a situation that he's completely out of his depth in, where he is the court jester. Some people think he's an assassin. Some people think he's just a jester. Um, but at one point in the story... Uh, he is challenged to a duel by a very strong, very masculine, very scary-looking man. And when he falls back from getting slapped across the face, he has a compatriot there. Her name is Jane. She catches him, and she says, accept the duel. I will send a message to the black fox, and he will come and fight in your stead. And that scene, his response was, though, he turns back and he says, the black fox, you'll get the black fox to fight. Yes, yes, I'll get them. Okay. You're sure? You're sure? You're... Okay, okay. And that, but he gains courage from the fact that he knows the black fox is going to come and fight in his stead. And so he goes and he, he walks up to this man, he grabs a glove, and he slaps him across the face and challenges him back. He gains courage from somebody else. Uh, another thing I wrote down is, could it have been as a leader a morale issue or considering the morale of his men? He talked about maybe he didn't have the confidence to lead as strongly as maybe if someone was, was present there. Or he knew that his men would recognize Deborah as a prophetess, uh, in his company, and his men would feel more confident in their mission. That was another thing I wrote down. Or maybe it was just a general lack of trust in God. That is also possible. One thing I did consider as I was going through this is, I don't know about anybody in the audience, but I know myself, oftentimes when I study biblical characters, it is very easy to make snap judgments about a person. You don't put themselves in their situation. A classic example would be Adam and Eve. If I had been Adam, God talked to me directly. He told me not to eat the fruit of that tree. And when my wife brought it to me half eaten, I said, get out of here, woman. No. If I'm honest with myself, I probably would have taken a bite too. Anybody think any other? I got another character I wrote down here. Uh, the Israelites, that's just the people. Wandering in the desert for 40 years, complaining. Man, those Israelites... How can they complain? I mean, they saw the, the hand of God and everything they did. They, we talked about the Red Sea there. He saw uh, that, that miraculous crossing of, of, of the Red Sea and, and the Israelite might destroyed. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. They saw all of these things. 
the sons of Korah swallowed up by the, by the earth. I mean, manna comes from heaven. All these things, how could they complain? I'd imagine if I ate manna for 40 years, I'd probably complain too. If I ate the same thing for a week, I'd probably complain. And the last one I wrote down was Peter. And there's two, two instances I can think of where it's very easy to judge Peter. The first is when he stepped out of the boat to meet his Lord and Savior. During the middle of a storm, walking on the water uh, out to Jesus and, and, and begins to look around and away from his Lord and Savior and begins to sink. Lack of faith. I would have, if I'm honest with myself, I wouldn't have gotten out of the boat. I've never walked on water before. I wouldn't have the faith to even step out in there, let alone in the middle of a storm. And then when he denied his Lord three times. I think I've been quick to judge that. But you put yourself in his situation. He was terrified. That doesn't excuse the behavior. But I think that, that I tend to be quick to judge people harshly. And the Bible doesn't say in this passage of Scripture the why. It doesn't tell us why Barak said what he said. But it does tell us he said it. And he did make it a step, an error step, in this particular instance. We know that. I'm not judging him for it, because I may have, in fact, we'll go into why, I probably would have said the same thing. In fact, let's look at that. So wh- what was Barack up against? And all of this had to have been in the back of his mind when he was, when he was hearing what Deborah had to say to him. There were 900 chariots of iron. Google sometime a Canaanite chariot. See what it looks like. But just to describe it to you, it's a six spoke uh, two-wheeled, six-spoke wheels vehicle uh, that carries two, two passengers typically, sometimes three. Uh, two horses are drawing that. And you'd have a driver who was armored, and you would have a, uh, a, a fighter, for lack of a better term. Usually it would be an archer who was also armored uh, and was carrying what's called a composite bow. A composite bow is a reinforced laminate, laminated bow. So they take not just wood, but you'll take sinew and other... And other um, materials, and you'll laminate them together to create this powerful bowl. So, so powerful, in fact, that when you unstring it, typically a bow would face it this way, the U. When you unstring it, it actually faces the other way. It's such a powerful pull. So when you string it, the point is, is it's extremely powerful, extremely accurate, and the, the, the punching power of a composite bow is, is much greater than your typical bow. There's 900 of these. And they, they didn't fight alone either. So it's not just 900 chariots. The Bible doesn't talk about the other men that are following. So when, when Sisera calls his chariots, he's also calling his army. So with, even with 10,000 men, uh, Barak would have been outnumbered pretty significantly. He's fighting a trained force. So that is, that's something that uh, I think uh, is important to consider. Training is, or, or a trained force is fighting an untrained force. Uh, there's, a, there's a big difference between trained and untrained. You fought with the individuals who you're next to. Uh, you've learned to work and maneuver together with people. Uh, you have confidence in your training. You know how to use the weapons that you were given to the best effect. Uh, there's all these things that he had to consider. Uh, if you want a visual representation of what a, an untrained force fighting a trained force is, the opening scene of the movie Gladiator. And just in general, if you look at the Roman, Roman Empire, why did they become such a great empire? It was because they had such a trained military force. But in the opening scene of the movie, this, this untrained Germanic tribe, and I don't doubt their military prowess individually, 
attack a very trained Roman force, and they lose. And that, that happened many, many times throughout the expansion of the Roman Empire. And he was facing them on a plain. He knew about that where they would come was the River Kishon, or that area, and it was flat terrain. And that's where chariots have the best advantage. So you're telling me I'm going to go fight chariots on flat ground. And some of the things he had to consider about his own force. So 10,000 men he's getting from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun. But they're untrained. They've been under subjugation for 20 years. They haven't had the chance to, to fight as a unit. So I'm going to call 10,000 guys, and we're going to go fight this trained force that's bigger than us. They're outnumbered. We talked about that. They have less mobility. Mobility is huge. And if you look at the terrain, I would encourage you at some point to go back and actually look at the terrain in the area. So Mount Tabor is actually somewhat surrounded by flat ground, but the terrain is very flat when you get into the the south and the southwest of that. There's this big open plain. Um, And if they they were, so they met on Mount Tabor, but if they left that high ground, there was really, I mean, you were going to get run down. So they, they weren't, they didn't have the mobility. They didn't have the missile fire support which uh, at that point in, in history was incredibly important. Um, so if you don't have, if you're standing there with swords and shields and sickles and plows and whatever else you have to fight with and the enemy has a bunch of missile troops, you're just going to get torn to shreds. I tried to put this in modern day terms. So let's say we as a church were going to form a platoon. And I said, tomorrow or the next day or the next day, we're going to fight a trained uh, company of soldiers equipped with modern army or modern modern equipment so they're going to have assault weapons they're going to have body armor they're going to have kevlar helmets supported by humvees and does everybody know what a humvee is an up armored humvee with a 50 cal mount on the back they're going to have several of those by the way that would in many respects be the modern day equivalent of what barack was being asked to do and i'm not doubting anybody here's individual military prowess I just think we'd lose. <laughs> but what did Barack do? And the interesting thing, I, I, too, is he knew he wasn't going to get the glory. After he set this condition, and Deborah met it, and said, but because of, because of that, essentially, you're, you're not going to get the glory. The glory is going to go to a woman. He could have walked away at that point, too, by the way. Why would, why would I leave? Find somebody else. If I'm not going to get any sort of mention or glory for this, why, well, go get somebody else. He didn't. It wasn't about him, and I think he understood that. And ultimately, if you look in the story itself, he gives glory to where it is, glory is due. You look at the song of Deborah, and Barak is part of that. They give glory to God for the battle. They actually give glory to Jael. In that, in that song as well. And Jael was the one who did kill Sisera, so ultimately would have won the, the honor and glory that was due to a military commander for taking the leader of the opposing force. He gave credit where it was due. And then how did the battle go? So looking at the battle itself, and I, I find it really interesting to look at how God orchestrated the movements uh, setting this battlefield up. Because he was the one that did choose it. In the prophecy, he said, this is where I will bring Sisera. This is where you will form up. So they drew up on ground chosen by God. How important is terrain 
in a military engagement. Anybody think of any historical examples where terrain played a huge role? Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Vietnam, there's plenty of instances where terrain played a huge factor. I wrote some ancient examples. Thermopylae, everybody's familiar with the, the 300 Spartans, there's actually more, but uh, who held off a superior, far superior army of Persians just because of terrain and their fighting prowess. But it was, it was terrain that won, won that. For three days they held them off. Agincourt, Henry V, everybody familiar with Shakespeare's Henry V? That famous quote, we few, we marry few, we band of brothers, that was on the St. Crispin's Day speech. That was Agincourt. That, that, that was written about. And Agincourt is where uh, the English broke, in many respects, the might of the French chivalry, their, their uh, knights, uh, during the Hundred Years' War. It was the third battle, the third major battle in the Hundred Years' War. And terrain played a huge role in that, uh, muddy terrain specifically. The longbow obviously played a big part of that as well, but... But terrain was a big factor there. And then Bannockburn. Anybody familiar with Bannockburn? Wallace LaBruce, Scotland. Same thing. So he chose terrain. It was a bog that would limit the abilities for the English to flank him. Uh, it was actually very well-chosen ground. And so a far smaller force was able to defeat a larger force. If you talk to a Scot, that's, that's a big battle for them. But he divinely orchestrated a lot of things. You know, it's right, right after you, you, you hear about Barak calling the men of Zebulun and Naphtali. There's this little insert there where you talk about a guy named Heber the Kenite. Why does it matter that he moved away from his people? Well, he moved to Kadesh, and he was friends with, with Jabin, for lack of a better term. He was allies with him, at, at the very least, and would have been in a position to see or hear about the call of the men of Naphtali and Zebulun to see them gathering and went and told Sisera. And so the response to Cicero is, well, I'm going to get all my troops and I'm going to go gather near that area, which is the river Kishon, which is exactly where God intended them to be. So the fact that Heber the Kenite moved away from his people and was in Kadesh or near Kadesh was something that was divine or inspired divine movement uh, on the battlefield. And we'll get back to that. As far as the battle itself, so the men were formed up on Mount Tabor with uh, Deborah and, and Barak. And he had to have seen the entire force that was arrayed against him on the mountaintop. And Deborah says, up, for the, this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? Now, we don't know exactly when the divine inspiration or the divine intervention, I mean, of the Lord occurred on this battle. But uh, we had uh, uh, rains or storms in the area that caused uh, flooding, flash flooding in the area. So this, this, the river Kishon overflowed its banks, flooded the plains area. Uh, we don't know when that happened, though. We could conjecture that when Barak's standing up there, he's probably shaking in his boots. Well, why did I do this? Why did I accept this? Why did I come up here? Because he sees what is arrayed against him. And I think it's very easy when you, when you focus on the enemy uh, to, lose, to lose sight of uh, the hand of God, or to lose faith in some respects. But when Deborah said to go, he went. Doesn't say there was any hesitation. Doesn't say, well, wait a minute. Are you sure? Are you 100% positive? No. She said, up, and he went. 10,000 men charged down Mark Tabor towards the, uh, the 900 chariots and the supporting troops. Now, what happens to chariots when the ground gets muddy? Anybody happen to hazard a guess? 
They get bogged down. They stop. They might start running into each other because they're sliding. The effectiveness of a chariot is completely taken away by God's divine intervention in this, this particular battle. And another thing that's incredibly important in any military engagement is the morale of the troops that are involved. Now, the Bible doesn't say that the Lord affected that directly either. He could have. He may have. But all he had to do was take away their advantage completely. And now they're stopped at a standstill where they were moving before. They have the mobility. They have the advantage. And now we can't move. We're stuck. And there's 10,000 screaming people coming at us who want to kill us. Morale is incredibly important, and when morale breaks, usually the morale, morale breaks down in a unit as soon as people, individuals start to run. And you see other people running, and that's it. At some point, there is a breaking point, and when that happens, it's over. And you turn your backs to the, to the enemy, or you turn the backs to your opponent, it's game over. And that's what happened here. They broke, and the Israelites pursued them and killed them to, to a man. And again, getting back to the, the divine movement or on, on the, uh, the battlefield, for lack of a better term, now the Lord, the fact that Hebrew the Kenite's tent was nearby, sets up the stage for Deborah's prophecy to be fulfilled. When Jael, Hebrew's wife, offers sanctuary to someone who he believed was an ally, went into the tent, tired, fell asleep, and she drove a tent peg through his, his temple taking the glory from, from uh, Barak. And I want to actually read um, something from William MacDonald's commentary about this. Thus was Deborah's prophecy of verse 9 fulfilled. God used a mere honeybee, uh, Deborah's name means bee, little bee, to cast down human reason, and that's what Jabin's name actually means, or is considered to mean is human reason, uh, when it exalted itself against the knowledge of God, the judgment came upon the foe like lightning, and that's what Barak's name means. Jael used a tent peg, the witness of her pilgrim life, to bring down the pretensions of the mighty, and the hammer speaks of the word of God. The question I'd like to put to you is, uh, why do we think that Barak is listed in the hall of faith on Hebrews chapter 11? So we know that his initial response to God's command was, no unless. So why do you think that he's in the Hall of Faith? Hebrews chapter 11. But it always takes us at our very best in the Hall of Faith. He doesn't mention what's worse about the characters there. He doesn't say Moses the murderer. He doesn't say Rahab the harlot. He speaks of their faith. The way God uses the very best in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'd like to close um, with a couple of passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I read this the last time, the last message with Deborah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7, this is the, uh, 
the thorn in the flesh that Paul had, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And I love this verse. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm not saying that that Barak or Deborah were weak things of this world, were not strong in their own way. But this, in this story, God's power is the, the power that truly shines through. It's God's strength. And sometimes I think, I, I'm definitely, I would say I do this, but when you do a study on a biblical character, sometimes that's all we focus on. Sometimes all I focus on. How can I, how can I make a point that's really important about this person individually and what they did? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't study them and take away application points from their lives. I think it is important because we are ultimately imperfect beings ourselves. And I think we can take lesson from others. That's what history is. It's about learning, hopefully, from the past. But the point is, is it's not about us. It's not about the individuals we, stare, we, we study. Ultimately, God's, God's word um, is telling the story of God and his sovereignty, and he uses imperfect men and women to accomplish uh, his will as we move throughout. And one thing I did want to talk about, too, at the end of it is, um, so we don't today have a prophetess or prophet to tell us directly, face-to-face, what God has told us to do, do we? God doesn't typically work that way anymore. But we have the completed word of God And he demands obedience to it. Again, I'm not sitting here judging Barak for his questioning of it or his conditional obedience. Because I would say I'm probably guilty of the same. Lord, I'll do that if you do this. I'm standing here telling you today I've done that before. But God demands obedience and he doesn't demand conditional obedience. He demands unconditional obedience. But we have the completed word of God and we have his commands Another, another application point is even when we falter, like Barack did, make a mistake, make a misstep, that doesn't mean we should give up on the spot or say, you know what, that's it, I'm done. I failed. Talk about Hebrews chapter 11, taking people at their best. We didn't talk about David stealing Bathsheba from Uriah, but David's in the hall of faith, isn't he? And he was called a faithful man. So don't give up if you falter. Continue to seek to obey the Lord. And I think that this story is ultimately um, teaching us or showing us that or showing us that what God can accomplish uh, through imperfect people. Uh, the book of Judges is that. And so I think that we can take heart in that because he can accomplish great things through us. I know he can through me if, he, if, if I let him. And that's the, the, the salient point there is you have to obey, you have to follow, you have to allow the Lord to do great things through you. Not saying he can't accomplish his will if you don't, but uh, you do have, there, there is a point or a, a, a 
part of it that you have to actually contribute. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the opportunity to open it. We thank you for um, all of the, the examples that you have given us, Lord, to study, to look at, to, to take lesson from, Lord. And I pray that this morning uh, that uh, I would take lesson from the life of Barak, the life of Deborah, understanding that even when I falter, I should move forward and continue to seek to do your will, Lord. And also understanding, Lord, that you are completely and undeniably the sovereign of this universe and that you are in control and that you can do great things. We thank you so much again for the gift of your son, which we are about to celebrate, a gift that we do not deserve in the least, and yet you freely gave. And we thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.